This week's episode of the Star Wars Report is brought to you by the good folks supporting us over on patreon.com slash Report. Let's do the show, folks. Gum, gum, gum. And who might you be? It's the Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report. Woo! Star Wars Report. The place for Star Wars news, features, interviews, and more. Then we can do something epic. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Please delete as appropriate. The Force. It's calling to you. Just let it in. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to The Mandalorian. It's happening. We're getting uh, our first Star Wars television show on Disney Plus, and um, I'm pretty hyped about it. So let's go. Uh, I'm Riley Blanton, uh, do the Star Wars Report podcast, and I'll be um, uh, hosting the discussion today. And we are really going to uh, dig in on what we're expecting, what we're speculating about, what we're looking forward to uh, from The Mandalorian. So let's go all the way down to the far side, and we'll each introduce ourselves real quick. Uh, hi, I'm Peggy Eisenhower. I am uh, here, based here in Atlanta. I am a uh, lifelong, well, since I was 12 when the first movie came out, Star Wars fan. I saw it in the theater. Uh, I'm a member of the 501st Legion with an uh, original trilogy TK, and uh, I am very excited about this show. And I'm Christy Morris, uh, and I actually, my first Star Wars movie was The Phantom Menace. Um, and I'm also a member of the Shut 501st, <laughs> as Ara Singh, who happened to be in the Phantom Menace. Um, and I'm on uh, a couple of different podcasts, um, actually here with uh, the Star Wars Report, which Riley happens to run. Mm-hmm. That's the only one you're going to say? <laughs> I'm Michael Morris. I do the Cloud City Casino podcast, which is also on the Star Wars Report. Uh, and I'm also on the 501st. Uh, my name is Brian Young. I'm not, I don't dress up in the 501st, but I'm an honorary member, so that kind of counts. Um, and uh, I write for StarWars.com and Star Wars Insider and Star Wars, uh, pretty much Star Wars for many outlets. Uh, you might have seen my essays most recently in the Marvel Star Wars Age of Comics. I've been doing a lot of those. And uh, I do the Full of Sith podcast. So... Uh, I like talking about Star Wars constantly. I was there at uh, Celebration for the Mandalorian panel, and uh, I think most everybody was, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so most everybody, most everybody except the moderator, which is why he's the moderator and we're on the panel. <laughs> so, well, and, and because and we just got, because you guys got a lot of footage back there. I'm going to roll this in the background here. Um, we, we got our first full trailer, but... You guys saw really some of the first footage we did. Brian, uh, kick us off. What was some of the stuff that really jumped out to you that they revealed at Celebration? So to set the scene a little bit, they, sh- they showed us probably a good 10 minutes of a, of a scene with uh, Carl Weathers' character, Grief, talking to the, the Mandalorian with no name, which I think is on purpose. I'm not sure we're going to get a name for him. And... Uh, the two of them are talking, they have a conversation, and then he kind of walks through town and goes to take this job. And uh, I think one of the things that jumps out at me the most was there was an image of a Kowakian monkey lizard on a spit being cooked for food with another Kowakian monkey lizard in a cage watching it, watching its, its friend die. And it was so horrifying. Uh, but I guess that's just what we're in store for for the show. And then they showed us an extended scene 
of the Mandalorian negotiating with uh, Werner Herzog, who is an absolutely insane filmmaker who has stepped into uh, the world of Star Wars. And he, they're negotiating a job, and the Mandalorian seems like he's really cool. And then it kind of cut to a trailer after that. The trailer they showed us wasn't anything that looks like the trailer that you've seen here. Yeah. Um, it was a little bit more action-y, it had a little bit more dialogue, and uh, the, we can get into details later, and, and I'd love to hear with the other panelists what they kind of picked out, but uh, there was definitely, they were very confident of it, but they weren't gonna release it to the public, so it was only those of us in the room who saw it, and that was, um, I thought it was pretty awesome, because. It made me feel special. Everyone else got potato phone footage. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, well, yeah. That's what, that's what you saw, right? <laughs> well, and Michael, you um, having seen it, what was the what's the vibe like? This is our first like live action series that for for Star Wars for Disney Plus, and it's really kind of the flagship show that they're launching with. A lots of writing on this. So, uh, what do you think um, Disney's going for here with uh, Mandalorian? Uh, ballin', I think that's the technical <laughs> term that uh, everyone's using, like within LFL. Ballin'. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think that really, like you just saw right there, the 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 first thing that they show you are all of these stormtrooper helmets on pikes, right? Because you you think about it, you're like, yeah, party on indoor, it's awesome, right? But there's got to be that transition period. You know, we know like historically that we don't see, uh, you know, governments fall and then another one come up and like there's like there's that that transition and like that's that lawless period, especially places, you know, which kind of looks almost like Tatooine or something, you know, that we know has always been pretty lawless anyway. So I think that that uh, really sets the scene for like what we're going to see. Yeah. Well, and the idea of the Mandalorian himself, this man with no name. Christy, talk a little bit about the advantage or maybe disadvantage of going with Pedro Pascal's character where this is an unknown. This isn't this is not Boba Fett. This is not a, a known Star Wars character. So I, I think at first it first of all, it was a bit of a risk going with Pedro just because the main thing he had done before this was Game of Thrones. And I mean, I think he was incredible as Oberyn, but it, he was kind of still an unknown. So the, there was that aspect in the casting, um, but then also just the um, going with a completely new Mandalorian character. Um, I'm really interested to see if they relate him at all to the rest of Mandalore and ever mm. talk about what clan he's from ever give him a name like you were referencing, Brian. Um, so I, I think that it was intentional to go this route um, and that they wanted to make it unlike anything we've seen before and not just rely on characters like Boba Fett. So you're not gonna complain about uh, putting a beautiful man like Pedro Pascal under a helmet? <laughs> I think at some point he'll take off the helmet. I don't think I, he will. I don't think he will either necessarily. But um, one interesting thing about that, though, to remember is I think that the, it, there is a chance that we will get some of that Mandalorian backstory. When you take into account that John Favreau, um, his exposure into Star Wars came from befriending Dave Filoni when they were both working at Skywalker Sound. Uh, when Dave Filoni was working on the Clone Wars before it had ever come out, and John Favreau was working on Iron Man before the Marvel Cinematic Universe blew up, and they were like, "Hey, can I can I watch your thing, and you can you can watch my thing?" And they they sort of built that friendship there, and then that's how John Favreau came in as Pre Vizsla, as the leader of Death Watch, on the Clone Wars, and so uh, John Favreau, I, I mean like. 
talking to Dave Filoni, he knows every sort of uh, uh, pocket and corner of lore you could imagine. And talking to the actors who work on the show, he's, he's willing to sit there and say, here's the history of your character. And you have to know that Jon Favreau got that with Death Watch and Clan Vizsla and how all that worked. So if any of that is going to come out in the show, um, part of it's going to be John Favreau, but a lot of it's going to be Dave Filoni's influence, who is a producer who's working on the scripts and directing episodes. Yeah, and it's and that lore. I'm really interested to see where that goes because there's so much opportunity for Mandalorian culture, and it's always been something that's been so fascinating to see just visually. Peggy, as a as a big Mandalorian fan, what what do you hope to see in terms of lore? Is it possible to get too bogged down, or do you really want to see like the the history of Mandalorian culture? Well, I, you know, I, I think for those of us that were fans of the the old extended universe, expanded universe, I think the idea that we might bring in a lot of content from Legends back into canon is very exciting. Um, obviously, you know, the trailers that we saw at Celebration were pretty clearly set on Tatooine. We weren't told that, um, but pretty clearly set on Tatooine. There were Jawas, there were Sandcrawler concept art, thinking about how all that's gonna fit in. I mean, obviously that's very exciting to me. Um, and I think that we are already also seeing references to um, uh, you know, to concepts from legends that they're going to bring in, the, the guilds, for example, and, um, uh, and other things. And I, I think that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to having that content come back. Yes, no, for sure. And let's dig into some of these characters, actually. Kara Dune. Uh, Chrissy, talk a little bit about um, um, Kara. Like how much I like her? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I will say part of the reason I'm excited about her is because I consider myself part of the Empire at heart. Um, so I love the fact that she's actually an ex-rebel who's gone bad, um, and she's going to be the shock trooper. Um, it, but I think, too, that casting um, Gina Carano for this role is really going to bring a lot to um, a character that, like this, traditionally would be more like gender neutral. Like anybody could be a stormtrooper and a cog in the wheel of the Empire. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that she's going to bring an interesting side to it, um, also in her ability to showcase that like aggressive part, possibly. They might use her experience in MMA fighting in the way she plays this role. It seems yeah. like if this were an RPG team, she'd be the tank, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the Mandalorian's the ranger, uh, IG-11 is the, the <laughs> rogue, and then she's the tank. Yeah, well, and you mentioned, uh, we, meant, we talked briefly about the guild, but that character really uh, centers on Grief Karga, which is interesting, Carl Weathers, uh, familiar to genre fans. Uh, Brian, talk a little bit about what you're most looking forward to as far as Carl Weathers. He was having a great time at Celebration. He looked like he was excited to be there. He was. I, I don't know. For those of you who don't immediately recognize Carl Weathers, he was... Uh, he was in. He was Dylan in Predator, and he was Apollo Creed, right? Like, so he's just got a lot of charisma. But it's interesting to see in all the footage we've seen, he's very understated, and he's very much sort of like a low-level boss in the underworld. And uh, I don't know. It's just really exciting to see, like, one of these really cool genre actors stepping into Star Wars, and he just, yeah, like like Riley said, he just seems like he's having fun. Like, and that's um, one of those things, uh, somebody asked George C. Scott what the most important part of a performance is to him, and he said it was joy of performance. 
that when you can see someone having fun with a part, that means more than anything. And Carl Weathers just seems like he's having fun. Like all of the actors that are in it seem like they're having that fun. Yeah, no, it's, and it's, because it seems like there'd be a lot of pressure, because this is something different that we haven't seen in Star Wars before. Yeah. Like this kind of episodic, really spaghetti western going full on for that uh, vibe. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the things I really liked about that new trailer was when the Mandalorian and IG-11 walk into the, the door, it immediately evokes images from the man with no name, right? Mm. With, uh, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly with the Mandalorian as the man with no name and IG-11 as the Angel Eyes character. And so it, it looks like it's drawing on that Western tradition in really interesting ways. And then Carl Weathers could easily be, you know, Rojo from, uh, from uh, A Fistful of Dollars. Yeah, and that, there was a uh, gif that like come out immediately after that with like the door coming down. It's like, we heard you were talking some, you know. <laughs> so that uh, was kind of great that it, like, um, someone was like, ooh, and like zeroed in on that, and then it was immediately uh, a gif. Is there more room for, I guess, being more specialized in genre for Star Wars storytelling on Disney Plus? Because we got a preview of this with Clone Wars. Like, Clone Wars would experiment this with a few episodes here and there, but now it really seems like we have a full tilt, full tilt season of episodic television. I, you know, I think it's I think it's really exciting, and I, I think that the time period where they've set it is, you know, it's clearly going to be a time of, of real lawlessness. So I, I get the whole Wild West thing. But what I love about that is that it means that these characters are going to get to have, um, you know, very interesting allegiances, and you're not going to know. I mean, I think that's what's so interesting to me about Cara Dune is that I don't know who she. I mean, the Mando, you know, the Mandalorian's working for himself. And you kind of get the motivation. You don't know what that means, and you don't know any of the backstory. And we can think about that. Maybe we can speculate about that. But, you know, who is she working for, right? What is her motivation? I'm very curious about that. I suspect the Empire really is, isn't around anymore. I mean, yeah. it's done. So, so, so what fills that void of lawlessness? Who are the warlords? Who are the... I think it's just there's a tremendous amount of speculation. For those unclear on the timeline, John Favreau said that it happens about seven years after the Battle of Yavin which places it about four years after the Battle of Endor and about three years after the Battle of Jakku. So this is the third year that the Empire is really a non-entity, which is why something like this happening on the outskirts with remnants of the Imperials still in some, what appears to be nominal control of a system, is really interesting. Is the lawlessness because of the Empire that remains, or is the lawlessness because of the, the scum and villainy around that's been allowed to flourish, I think that that raises a lot of really interesting questions, especially in that era. Now, wasn't that something, Michael, wasn't that something they talked about in the celebration footage? Again, I, like, I'm remembering, like, the, the potato phone footage, but, like, they, they, like, explicitly, I remember the voiceover talking about, like, yeah, how, how do you like it without the Empire now? Like, highlighting the lawlessness of the Empire once it's fallen. I, I, I can't recall, like, that exact line, but... Yeah, I mean, like I said, that, that was the, the main thing that I, I zeroed in on uh, with it. Like I said, was just thinking, like, okay, what, like I said, like, okay, what, who, who's, you know, who, like, it's always one of those things where, I mean, you look at, like, back with Prohibition, right? Like, the bootleggers profited, right? It's just, to me, it's, it's that period. Yeah. Well, and, and you quite literally have the imagery in the beginning of the trailer here of stormtroopers with, like, spears spiked. I was wondering if there's, like, a bunch of Ewoks hanging out here or something because, like, you see it. But really, 
the the one glimpse we do get of the functioning empire, and we kind of alluded to it, but the, uh, Giancarlo Esposito's character, um, we've only seen tiny glimpses of this Im- imperial operative, but he seems to be in some kind of control. He does, he does, and in the um, in the trailer they showed, uh, we only saw sort of really brief glimpses of him in this trailer, but in the Celebration trailer, we actually saw him in the the, the cockpit of a TIE fighter. We saw him uh, actually taking some pretty uh, dramatic actions and, and, yes, seeming in control of this situation. And, uh, yeah, there's really no way to know exactly how he fits in or how he's going to oppose the Mandalorian yet, but uh, there's a lot of really interesting possibility. And for the, the gamers out there, another thing they, they showed in that special footage uh, was the incinerator trooper, which came from uh, the Force Unleashed video games. So oh. I'm sure anybody who played those will be excited to see that. Well, and there are some of the um, uh, comparisons here to Battlefront 2 and some of the storyline as well. Well, because we see the idea of Imperial operatives after the fall of the Death Star. And like just that idea of how does an imperial unit operate once central control is gone, and are they going to be more violent? Because again, we've seen extreme versions of the empire in the the first order, but that's years down the line. Like this is pretty close to the fallout. And I'm well, not I'm not completely sure though that we're talking about imperial officers. I mean, I think we've got a lot of imperial uh, uh, armor. I think we've got a lot of imperial machinery. But you know, when we looked at the trailer and did so something Daniel and I talked about after we saw the trailer at Celebration, you know, the armor's dirty. They don't have their thermal detonators, right? Are these actually Imperial troops or are these troops that, are, are these individuals who have gotten this armor from, oh, I don't know, the Jawas and mm-hmm. are, you know, and are, are acting in, uh, in that capacity, in that armor for one of these warlords and there's really no Imperial connection other than we've scavenged. The parts. I do think um, Werner Herzog's character is Imperial, or at least has access to Imperials, because of the exchange he has in hiring the Mandalorian. Mm. That the the carrot he dangles for the Mandalorian is uh, ingots of Beskargam with the um, or with Beskar with the Imperial logo like stamped into them and it, it kind of reminds you of like Nazi gold, right? Like, uh, so Beskar sort of turns into that Nazi gold in this world and this is the wealth that they're using to put their last ducks in a row. And I think that to me at least implied that at least some of them were Imperials. Maybe the rest of them are just guns for hire though. Well, and we could see um, this fallout continue because it's placed on the edges of their outer rim, probably where the Empire already had the least amount of control. So there's maybe the most ripe for for takeover of some of these regional warlords. I was gonna say, I I feel like that's the most exciting thing about this show is that it seems like it's more to not about one side or the other in the war that happened, but rather all the people that were enduring it and on the outskirts of it. And so getting to see those people and then maybe possibly, like you were saying, Peggy, like scavenging for stuff um, and not necessarily being bad or good, but they're just kind of in between. Yeah. Well, and and so speaking of the Outer Rim, looking at the actual design, we, we get to see the Razor Crest 
and it's this new ship design. Uh, Michael, I know you're kind of a vehicle guy. Talk a little bit about what we saw, because I know they showed some, some of this behind the scenes of the actual making and designing of the Razor Crest. So what, what I like, it the, the first thing that actually come to mind for me was the Mist Hunter, which was mm. uh, Forlom and Zuckus's ship back in Legends. But like then looking at it a little further, it actually kind of looks a lot like a Republic gunship. So... I don't know. I mean, like, it's it's one of those where you look at it and you're like, oh, I kind of see this, like, maybe like a repurposed gunship. But then it also has sort of that, uh, like, Slave One look to it a bit, you know, like like where you you can kind of see some of the, uh, I, I don't know, like like some of the, the longer panel. I mean, granted, it's not as, like, iron-shaped as, as it, but I don't know. It, I, I think there's definitely these influences um, that, that this came out of. One of my favorite things about this, you can see this footage of them actually building the model, and that was sort of like an accident. They were planning on doing the ship completely in CG, and one of the guys at ILM was like, hey, can I, I think I'm just going to build one. Can we just do one shot? I'll just build it, and we'll do one shot. And then they ended up like all of the ILM guys started going after work to this guy's garage and like building it on their own like they did in the old days until they had this like movie quality razor crest and they're like well if we're gonna if we're gonna do that we might as well just do all the shots with it so they they'd planned on doing it with cg and those ilm guys were just so dedicated to getting that look and feel from before that they're like screw it we'll volunteer our time to make this a model well and i remember seeing some of that footage where they literally in the ways they shot it on the on camera was the same way i mean lucas was shooting this stuff in 76 probably yeah with yeah. the with the motion control cameras on blue screens yeah, and so you see like um, a shot of the Razor Crest sweeping by the screen, and it looks like oh, I remember that shot from Empire of the X-wing zooming by. And it was so cool too because it's like you know thinking about this these guys working on it in somebody's garage, yeah. and then you know they're just swinging it by. Um, it, but it looks so cool as the finished product, and even seeing like the way that the engines are burning in the back, like all of it of the Razor Crest seems to me like the rest of this world looking very used and maybe kind of broken and dinged up and I love that. Well, and that's kind of familiar to us, um, Ryan, because like the idea of the used universe, we've gone all over the place with with Star Wars, various locations in the new films, with Clone Wars, but kind of back where it started, it seems almost like Mandalorian in some ways, at least from a design standpoint, brings us full circle back to A New Hope. Yeah, it does. And I'm not um, I mean, they haven't said that it was Tatooine, but it looks like Tatooine, but that's definitely interesting. And even if it doesn't turn out to be Tatooine, and it's some other place that happens to have Jawas, um, yeah, it does have that visual thing. John Favreau said in an interview at D23 um, that the concept for the show is to say, okay, you love the experience of walking into the Mos Eisley Cantina. Now we're going to take all of those background players from the cantina and tell their story, and that's how it's supposed to feel. So yeah, it's definitely that used, lived-in scum and villainy that they're, that they're giving us from that, that original uh, model. Well, and speaking of some of those character designs, we get an, an Ugnaught writing a blurg. That's a thing that's happening. Uh, I have no idea who this character is, but I want to know his entire backstory and what's going Should on. Should we just in make it shot? up now on the spot? <laughs> right. I mean, it, it'll be corrected at some point, right? But why not? It's Melshi. <laughs> <laughs> well, and 
But it's interesting because some of these background characters, like these, I pulled out these two shots from the trailer just because I immediately was fascinated by like, who are these people and what is their story? And it's just like the idea of what looks like a Twi'lek bounty hunter and like, what is going to happen? This looks so cool. Yeah, no, I mean, this looks like every 13-year-old's West End role-playing game experience. Yeah. Well, and, and the, uh, I, I, the, I've got his name here, though. The, his name is uh, Gwil? Gwil? The Gwil, the Ugnot writing the blurg. Awesome. Say that five times really fast. I knew it wouldn't last. It's leaked from a Funko Pop. So and then, of course, the, uh, the Twi'lek there is, and I can't remember the actress's name, but she was Tonks and... Natalia Tenna. There you go. She was Tonks uh, in the Harry Potter movies. Right, and then uh, Osha or Asha in um, Game of Thrones. So that's pretty cool too. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then um, we have IG Eleven. <laughs> that's true. I, so IG Eleven is actually a performance by, voiced by Taika Waititi, who's also one of the episodic directors. Which is an interesting. All I can think of is, of course, his performance in Thor Ragnarok, which is an interesting style of humor to bring to Star Wars. Now we don't know if that's going to be the case, but I feel like that's why you would get Taika Waititi to voice a character. Well, I think it goes along. If the Mandalorian is a very, very, very serious character, in order to get the levity required of Star Wars, I think you need somebody like Taika Waititi to like bring that out. And uh, the, the idea that he's, I really love sassy droids personally, like who doesn't love K2SO and his sass? Now just apply that, that level of sass to Taika Waititi and his humor and put it in the body of a murderous IG series droid. And I don't know about you all, but that to me looks like a recipe for success. <laughs> I, I want to know everything about IG-11. Well, and I think the, the idea of the sidekick, we have a, a sidekick badass killer droid, um, which I'm, I'm just excited to see. And we got that one shot of him just going to town uh, that, I, that I highlighted here, and it's yeah. just one I want to see more of. Which is, like, if any of you played the old Shadows of the Empire game, you know, like, how disappointing it was for... I mean, I liked the game, but when, when you're like, oh, sweet, I'm going to fight IG-88, what's going to be... And he's hopping around like a rabbit, and you're like, that is not what I expected. <laughs> but then you get this, and he's spinning around like a top, firing, you know, lasers everywhere, and you're like, okay, yeah, now that's more my speed, right? So that when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is going to be so good. It's interesting, although seeing IG-11, it kind of reminds me, and I have a few friends who've asked me who are like generally Star Wars fans, but not into the nitty-gritty, so they see the trailer and they're like, so is that Boba Fett? Is that, is that IG-88? Like, they're interested enough, and that's the assumption they make. Is it, if there are no immediately familiar characters, if, if Bosk doesn't show up, is there like a missed opportunity, or is this a good thing that we have IG-11, but not necessarily IG-88? So uh, I think that it was specifically done because Favreau said that Boba Fett is not going to be in the series um, and that this is IG-11, not IG-88. I think they really wanted this to be known as its own thing and not be um, just purely always mentioning the same characters. And I like that, but I, I do, as a fan of Bounty Hunters, feel it was a bit of a missed opportunity just because I would enjoy seeing Boba Fett appear in this. But now we have more Bounty Hunters. Well, sure. I- I, you know, but I, I think there's two there's two ways to think about that, right? One, is is it going to be Boba Fett? And I, I suspect the answer is probably no, because that's going to be developed differently. But are we, you know, the other part, of, will we see other characters that we know? 
and you know we've only seen the trailer we know that this is set between six and seven we know what's going on in this period of time with some of the characters we love right i mean you know leia and han are having a baby mm -hmm. we know that luke is setting up a jedi training school so we know what's going on in their world i would expect to see that we know people that survived order 66 that are still around including but not limited to jar jar and we know that Beckett, <laughs> right? And, and we know that Beckett killed Ara Singh. That's right. Sadly. And we, and we know. Over it that's already. right. <laughs> Very upset. We, so we know. So the question, you know, the question that I have, I mean, what I think is really interesting is like, what do we think this job is that he's been commissioned with the Beskar bringing in from Legends? Thank you very much. Um, to you know, to do. And given what we know about what happens in Episode Seven, where you know we have a young woman who's being looked for or at least has been hidden away what is he looking for and how do we think about that and i personally believe complete speculation right i know nothing i don't even have a podcast um <laughs> oh totally not um i think that we're going to see some familiar characters as part of the story because they're the ones that have hidden the you know the the imperial gold right or or they know where Luke's lightsaber is, or they know where who Ray's parents well, we, are, and that's the secret that's being kept. And I, so I think we're absolutely going to see familiar characters. They're going to they're going to be doing other things. We've mm -hmm. got Luke's lightsaber uh, in the canon, being found already by Bazine Natal uh, in her short story. Do we know for sure that because they never specifically say? And I actually read that more as because they they said it from being from Endor. I thought that was actually Vader's helmet that she. I had. have no proof publicly to back it up, but my guess is, yeah, that's pretty much his saber. Okay. I mean, well, you know, if we're going to speculate wildly, right, which, that's what else hell. are we going to do here? Um, I haven't had beer yet, but we could start. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, if we speculate wildly and we say, well, you know, we know that the episode seven speculation is that Maz is a Jawa, and this is maybe set on Tatooine, <laughs> right? What's the connection? How does, how does Ray and the lightsaber end up with Maz, and what did the Jawas in that original trailer have to do with it? That's what inquiring minds want the, to know. The important <laughs> thing is, if we do get uh, characters that we know that they don't, the you know the uh, or the week before they don't go. Yes, we said Greedo. So that that didn't get much. Okay, Clone Wars. That was the big thing where they're like, "Oh, Greedo's in the next episode." Yes, we said Greedo. It's like, okay. It, it was cool because George Lucas was pretty much in that episode too. But, right. Um, I think looking at the way the scene with Werner Herzog is set up, the way they showed it at Celebration, where he's asking the Mandalorian to take a very difficult, dangerous job worth a whole bunch of Beskar, which is precious to him as uh, money, but also precious to him culturally, and that he's still hesitating to do the job, my guess, just from a storytelling perspective, is that the twist at the end of the, se the season because we know they're already working on season two, is that that person that he's looking for and going to find is going to be someone we know. That it's going to be someone shocking to us that we would have never guessed. We can't uh, leave it there. Who? Who do you think it is? I, I, I can't for, for the record, if it's Jar Jar, I said so now. <laughs> I, I, Jar Jar's on Naboo at that point. He's... he's, he's I, think, I think he's a street clown in Aftermath. A little bit. Well, that's... That's a I different would, conversation. We I would hope have. the Gungan military has a better retirement plan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but 
but I, I do think that that's where, where they're heading. Like, the Mandalorian doesn't know who he's after. When he finds out who he's after, he's going to get in over his head. And there's a lot of opportunities for other sorts of characters that we could see in this era, right? Uh, Mon Mothma is the head of the Republic at this point, and we have Genevieve O'Reilly there, and they're not afraid to use her. And that's... Her casting is really the only reason I'm 100% confident that the Mandalorian is not Boba Fett in disguise or something, because if it was, it would be Daniel Logan. Like, I don't think there'd be any two ways about that. I think they'd bring in Daniel Logan, or at least somebody who looked approximately like Daniel Logan. But they've already brought him in a ton in Clone Wars. They've proven that they're not going to recast that stuff, and I don't think they would recast it as a feint uh, hmm. to try to lure us into thinking it's not Boba Fett. I, I agree. I think, though, you know, the, the other thing, and a, a nod to the Boba Fetts in the room, um, if there is a quest, right, a job that is so valuable um, and so important, I could also see competition for it. What so if I could imagine a story arc where other bounty hunters who are interested in trying to complete that and, and to get the best car, if you will. So I'm of the firm opinion that Boba Fett is dead in the Sarlacc, but what if Boba Fett's the target? Ooh. She just blew my mind, Brian. That'd be interesting. <laughs> you well, know, there are a lot of opportunities. I mean, you know, Daniel and I were speculating about this, and, you know, what if Ahsoka is the target? What if Sabine is the target? There are a lot of potential well, targets that could be really interesting. And that's, that's the other thing, too. Like, uh, we have the, the, the head of, of Mandalore at this point is, as far as we know, uh, Bo-Katan. And Katie Sackhoff could totally play Bo-Katan in real life. Right? Like, what about, what about that? Which, and these are a lot of characters from Clone Wars um, and beyond that we know and love as Star Wars fans, but part of me thinks that for Disney+, Plus, if they really want this to be the hard-hitting thing that not just all of the Star Wars fans are talking about, but they're like telling everyone, oh, no, you have to really see this. This is as good as the next Star Wars movie. You need to see this. Is, is there what high-profile, and I'll, I'll kick this to you, Michael, what high-profile character that you think would really get some buzz and blow some minds? What could they bring into this? Oh, man, that's, that's tough. Um, well, I mean, clearly I think Lando's your person who's going to sell anything, but I mean, I may have a little bit of personal bias. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's, uh, hmm, let me, let me think, try to think about it. Because everybody's dead that's important, <laughs> or we know it doesn't really work. I mean, like, Luke Skywalker is something like you'd think Maybe, but mm, I'm Bib Fortuna. <laughs> yeah, Sebastian Sanis, Luke Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's a, is that is that crazy? The idea of bringing Luke into the story, or does that just take away from the whole I, I don't premise? Think, I don't think they'd do it because Luke would cut through the Mandalorian. He wouldn't even need to pull out his lightsaber. He would just like mind trick him away. Like Luke at this point is at the peak of his powers. Like some dude in Beskar is just gonna be like. I watched a blind guy with a stick take down your predecessor, kind of not worried about you. I, I don't think it's, I mean, I think Luke is part of the story, but I think we know what Luke is doing, right? I yeah. mean, we know from episode seven that Han and Leia are, you know, raising Ben. We know that Luke is creating the Jedi temple, the Jedi training academy, whatever. We know what they're doing. I think there's a role. I mean, I think they can fill in that timeline without, you know, I, I think that will be filled in because we know the events. 
So the stories, I think particularly in the books, the authors will get to tell the stories of young Ben. Um, mm. Of and I'd love to see Kevin Anderson, by the way, do that. Um, I, I think those stories we know. I think, though, the question is who, who is unaccounted for, right, from episode seven? And, well, that's a really, I think they're really interesting. And, and one of Daniel's speculations is, you know, if, if Ray is Palpatine's, you know, clone that didn't work out because she wasn't evil, then maybe the quest is for her parents. I mean, I think the quest is for either her parents or something in that line because that's what, that's what fits that timeline. But and I think um, who is it? You know, who has that, who holds the secret to Ray's parentage? That's who we're looking for. I think it would blow the minds of everyone in this room, but it does make sense from a story perspective. If you have this Imperial Remnant looking for the person that's going to help lead them into that next era, Ray Sloan or, or Grand Admiral Thrawn? Yeah, because, well, and, I, and I just toss this, that, that's like a perfect transition, Brian. It's like you knew. Um, like the idea of this rogue empire, how does that play in with the Mandalorian? If you're, because we've been speculating some about Luke Skywalker, but even if that's not the case, what kind of threat do you think they present? Especially like we're seeing here, uh, reference to Rogue One, the Death Troopers. A lot of threat. I, well, the thing is, it's like, I think they're a local threat, right? I think that's the thing. And I think this series at least from what they've shown us, um, although we've got some cool shots of the Razor Crest moving around, it doesn't look like we've seen any different planets. It seems pretty localized here and that the problems are gonna be localized. And that's for two reasons. One, one, uh, this is a TV show and they don't have money to go to a different planet every episode, <laughs> right? They have spent more on this TV show than they've pretty much ever spent on a TV show, but that doesn't mean their budget's unlimited. So that you're gonna see a lot of the same places. You're gonna see that cantina a lot. Um, and I think the other reason is just that it's a more personal story in an isolated place on the timeline so that it doesn't affect anything else that other creators are gonna be doing after Rise of Skywalker comes out. Because I think the big reason we haven't seen that time period between um, the Battle of Jakku and Force Awakens filled in isn't because no one at Lucasfilm wants to tell those stories. It's because J.J. Abrams still has the reins with Rise of Skywalker, and he will change his movies up until the last minute. And so they don't want to lock him into anything that they don't have to. So that's why we haven't seen, I think, a lot of that storytelling in that era. But as soon as Rise of Skywalker comes out, I think it's wide open. And that's why I'm really excited to see that The Mandalorian actually ends after that. Uh, after Rise of Skywalker comes out because they said that it's it's coming out one week at a time. Well, and that is the other thing. So it's it's we're seeing eight episodes. Uh, it premieres one week at a time starting November 12th. And and so with that story unfolding, we already know that they're working on, on season two. I mean, we haven't even seen season one, Michael, but what do you think that says about the story? That, do you think they have it mapped out of like, oh, and we're going to tie this in post Rise of Skywalker? Again, the uh, the technical term was ballin', I think. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think they have faith, and it's like, how do you not have faith in the guy that kicked off the MCU, you know? Well, how do you fair. not have faith in Dave Filoni? Yeah. It just, it just kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, we're doing, of course we're doing season two. <laughs> well, I, I, but I, I think it's not a guarantee, because this is a brand new streaming platform. So I do think there is some significance to the fact that they have already greenlit uh, season two and they're working on it. It's, and I think that's pretty exciting because I, 
I do want to see continuation because like and and there's always the Netflix comparison that there's like a season or two and then it disappears. I I, I do hope with um, Disney Plus with it, whether it's the Cassian Andor series or the Mandalorian that we see have enough time for extended story and character development. Well, and I think that that's a really safe time period for this to happen, um, being in between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens, because it's these stories that I think fans in general of Star Wars have been asking for for a long time, which is about all of these characters on the periphery, the scoundrels, the scum and villainy. Um, And so there's a lot of room to play in that time period in particular with this. Um, And I think that it's nice that they're going back to basically the roots of Star Wars and that, you know, Filoni and Favreau got together and they were like, you know, the the space western is where it all started. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting because they've really pulled together quite an interesting and um, really talented sequence of episodic directors. And Brian, I know you're a big film guy. We have Taika Waititi, Bryce Dallas Howard. We have some amazing directors. And of course, Dave Filoni debuting in a live action directing of a Star Wars. What, what are you, which ones are you most looking forward to? What do you think are some of the unique um, elements of Star Wars they're going to bring? Well, I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is seeing this slate of directors get a shot to work on Star Wars from their Uh, diverse perspectives, but also use this as a way to audition them for live-action Star Wars movies to get some of these storytellers that that haven't had a chance traditionally to tell those huge stories, uh, more Star Wars on the screen. But uh, the one right off the top of my head that I'm most excited about is Taika Waititi. Like, that guy Mm -hmm. knows how to craft uh, stories that fall in between that line of dramatic and hilarious. Right? Like, how many of you have seen his movie Hunt for the Wilder People? It's so funny and it's so sweet and dramatic and heartfelt um, that he just really skates different tones really, really well. And if he can do that in The Mandalorian in Star Wars, which is something that, on, by all appearances, looks very gritty, if he can skate that line and, and sell the humor and the heart. Uh, I'm just really excited about that. He's just a, an incredibly talented filmmaker. And just, again, it's, uh, you, we talked about actors and per, uh, joy of performance. He has acting and joy of storytelling, and you can see it when you talk to him, or talk, see him talk. And I like that you mentioned that too, Brian, about the heart aspect of this, because that was something that surprised me in a recent interview at D23 with Favreau talking about that this story was not only going to be the gritty side and a lot of fighting, but it was also going to have a lot of heart um, and have that um, deeper meaning to it and not just be war. Yeah. Well, and and I think specifically the idea of seeing um, Dave Filoni as a part of this, because he really is, he's the guy who worked with George the most at Lucasfilm in, in the final years where George was. And in fact, like um, he and Favreau at Celebration were, went re- I think, really out of their way, almost unusually so, so to pay deference to George and how much they really wanted to be make this, I'm, I'm trying to remember the phrase, but I remember him specifically mentioning how this is a series that will appeal to original trilogy fans while also still being a great entry point for new fans. Yeah, I, you know, Disney has a lot riding on this. I, I mean, I, I am just reminded that the day Game of Thrones ended, the number one search on Google was how do you cancel your Netflix subscription? <laughs> well, that's why they're um, having us buy three how many, years How many of time. us have subscribed to Disney Plus, right? 
He's got it. So, how many of you are planning to before yeah. November? Yeah. Cities. How many of you are and planning to before the end of the weekend? <laughs> because you know. so, for those who don't know, the deal is if you sign up on D23's website as a member of D23, you can get three years of it for like 140 bucks, friends which is like family. one year free. Yep. You get the friends and family discount from D23. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a great deal, right? So every. But the reality is Disney's going to answer their shareholders. They're not doing this low budget. They're doing this big budget. And these are going to be awesome. I mean, I don't know any of this stuff. I don't, it's going to be awesome. These stories are going to be amazing. And they're going to have, I, I think they've got a green field to do so many different types of story arcs. And they're going to be arcs that appeal to everybody. I think they're going to find the balance. I think that's what they've done well all these years. And I think we're going to see characters that we love. I think we're going to see new characters. And it's going to be, and it, it, if I'm wrong, Disney's shareholders are going to smack them <laughs> as a shareholder for Disney. Well, I and, and I think, here, <laughs> I'm going to go here. Uh, we maybe opening a little bit of a can of worms, but hey, I think it's going to be a, a fun discussion. And, and that is, I, I guess I briefly alluded to it, but I'm just going to go straight there. I, I, I wonder if Favreau's overt, I, I guess, uh, tip of the hat to original trilogy era fans and George Lucas himself, um, is, is a manner of reaching out to fans who may not have liked The Last Jedi as much. Uh-huh. Like, is there, is there an element to, uh, maybe, maybe not like crapping on it or anything, but, but certainly just like saying, hey, this is something that's really going to be true to I, that first film. I don't think it, well, for one, I don't necessarily think this is going to be true to the first film. I think it's going to be true to one singular aspect of the first film, not the first film in general. Mm-hmm. Um, because the first film in general was aimed at kids and was part of the hero myth, and this is obviously not that. I think the other thing to take into account is that Favreau started writing this before Last Jedi ever came out as fan fiction and pitched these four episodes before Last Jedi came out. Disney is not working on any level to deal with the alleged controversy around Last Jedi, or anything else, they're not making business decisions based on a few angry fans and sock puppets on Twitter. They're just not doing that. And the timelines just don't bear that out. Yeah, and that, that, that is a very good point about the time that this actually is, is being created because we see, I, I think that's where the overreaction comes from maybe sometimes is that there's a tendency to read in a lot to these things. And I think you can definitely have something that pays homage to George Lucas in a new way that we haven't seen before that isn't trying to make up for something. Yeah, I don't think I, they have anything to make up for. I, I kind of think, I, I kind of have, have sort of a different view, which is I, I don't think it has anything to do with The Last Jedi. I think one of the things that, um, that, the, that the story has been trying to do is to figure out how, you know, Disney came in and Disney said all of the content that we had for all these years is now Legends. And it's, it's no longer canon, and we're going to tell these new stories. And, you know, for many of us here, that was, you know, I mean, that just was ripping out our hearts, if you will, because so many of the characters that we loved in Star Wars became no longer canon. And, you know, I, I think that the goal has been to figure out how do we find that balance. We got Thrawn back right away. And I said the, the day they announced that everything was going to go from canon to Legends, you know, I, I said, we're going to get two characters back. We're going to get Thrawn and we're going to get Mary Jade because I think that's really critical to the fandom. Now, I'm not, I don't know that we're going to get Mary Jade back in The Mandalorian. That's my episode nine speculation, right? I think that we've got to get her back to the table. We've got Thrawn writing 
books today, we're, we're set up to get that back. And I think that what, what I get just from the trailer that we have, right, just from the content that we have now, is that we're seeing a lot of legends, themes, and legends content come back. And that's gonna be the fan base that gets appeased, those of us that really I, like that content. I don't think that that's a response to fans, though. I think it's because Filoni and Favreau are fans of that stuff. I agree with that completely. Yeah, I think probably if, as far as like being a response more than anything, it's probably more a response to Josh Trank no longer doing his film more than anything. I mean, you know, if they were doing the uh, the Boba Fett film with him, and then all of a sudden that's not slated anymore, it's like, well, yeah, we can do this, you know, Mandalorian thing here. That's, uh, you know, I think that opens up that opened the possibility up for this. Uh, probably more than anything else. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I want to take the uh, last person panel. If you're interested, have a question, comment, uh, jump up here to the mic. We'll form a line right up here, and uh, we can take some of that and kind of bring you guys into the discussion a little bit as well. You want to kick us off, John? Let's see. You can shout it. If it doesn't work, you can shout okay. it out. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we go. Yeah. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, D23 has already said publicly that they're going. All of, anything going on there is going to be... Um, family friendly or whatever. I mean, granted, Star, all the Star Wars movies, the most recent ones, are all PG-13. I'm just curious about, from the panel, how much do you want them to push that PG-13? Do you want to keep it just like all the, the way the Star Wars movies have been so far? Or because now it's a TV episodic TV series, even though it may be family friendly and everything else, how far do you, would you like to see them push it? If you, it? There's no wrong answer to that question. If you just want to keep it that way, it's great, but how, if you do... Watching the trailers for this, to be honest, I'd like to see them pull it back a little bit. Like, watching the footage of that Kowakian monkey lizard get cooked, it's like, <laughs> I've got, uh, you know, I've got a four-year-old who I'd love to watch more episodic Star Wars with, and I don't think I can watch The Mandalorian with her, and I don't like not sharing Star Wars with them. So, I, I don't, yeah. I think you can get a lot of gritty stuff without creating those, Im those images or themes that take it further. I think, in in some respects, I think maybe they're they're going the wrong direction with that stuff to appease that, not appease, but but to cater to that fan base that wants it more gritty. That you know, it, it's the same thing with why I think Warner Brothers is messing up with the DC movies, except for only recently, right? Like, Batman v Superman was not a movie I'd want to take my kids to, but Shazam was. So, I would say that Baru and Owen Lars would probably disagree with you, though. I, well, you know, I, I, I think that's it. I really, I really appreciate this question. So I have two kids um, who are now both adults. Um, but I can remember when they were little, uh, you know, to, to me it depends on how it gets positioned, right? And they were watching The Clone Wars, which came on Saturday, you know, they were watching it Saturday mornings. They're tie-ins with Happy Meals at McDonald's. I wasn't paying any attention to it at all. And I happened to catch one episode that they're sitting there watching where a Jedi was tortured to death. And I absolutely freaked because I did not appreciate how dark that content had gotten. And, you know, and my kids were little. And it was not content that was appropriate. My older one was appropriate for him to consume with us watching it with him and having conversations. And my younger one, it really wasn't. And, you know, I can remember even with... Uh, with the scene in uh, uh, in the movies where they you know where where they do the beheading, and I'm thinking, this is something we need to talk about. If this is positioned, and and I you know, Disney, I know you. If this is positioned with tie-ins with Happy Meals and with the parks, 
and everything else, and everything that Disney's doing, which, which I kind of object to, right, which is everything is tied in with now merchandising. And, you know, we've got Black Spire, we've got the Galaxy's Edge, we've got the tie-ins with the merchandising. That's great for the shareholders. But yeah. if you're going to position it as, as Disney with the kids' tie-ins, then it needs to be appropriate for the content for the toys. And yes. if it's not, then don't have the damn Happy Meals. <laughs> well, well, at some point, I think, like, Galaxy's Edge, where you'll have, like, the kids, you can get the quacking monkey lizard, and some kid's going to be impaling it or something. And it's I'm totally ordering that, by the way, like, at Galaxy's Edge. Like, like, I saw well, that. You pull it and back, thought, and then it actually rotates on the <laughs> spit. I, 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 I've heard it taste like chicken. Oh, I, gosh. gosh. Yeah. Your question? So, so what I'm hearing is that... Um, uh, Majority of the panel, y'all don't want a scene in Mandalorian where the Mandalorian gets to crush um, the mountain's head. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was really hoping for that. Like, well, I'm, I need, I'm okay with the dark content, back. but if it if it is PG-13, then it needs to be labeled that, and they need to not tie in with promos for kids that are six and under. Pick pick yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't you can't have dark content and then be selling then toys at McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking if they stick with the MCU level of PG-13, and that, that yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it, you know, like so, like what we've gotten before. Like I said, the, I mean, we we saw the the charred bones of, of the Lars, uh, you know, we we saw Panda Baba lose his arm, you know. I mean, there, there's been violence in Star Wars from since the beginning, so. Um, you know, I mean, Anakin slaughtered the the Tuscan Raiders, and not just the men, but the women and the children. <laughs> I I don't necessarily think I I don't want I don't want anybody to mistake me and say no. I don't want them to have any violence or anything like that. But I think um, this has a different target audience than the rest of Star Wars, and I think that there's an acknowledgement now that Star Wars is going to be something that maybe we don't share with our entire families at the same time, and that is a shift for Star Wars. And that's something we need to be, whether we, we continue to do that, whether you know, we decide that the younger kids in the audience are able to handle that or whatever, we just need to be cognizant that that's something that is happening and we're not going to be able to just share that content with them automatically. And I will say too, like something that I think in particular about Star Wars has been great is that the things that would usually make something extend into an R rating would be, you know, like the excessive violence more than what we've seen, the language or like sexual nature of things. And I'm really glad that in a, as a whole, Star Wars has never gone that route. Well, I, and I think that it's important that it continue that way. It's my favorite thing that the only sex scene in Star Wars has been in one of the YA books. In Lost Stars. <laughs> well, there was mention of it in Princess of Alderaan. Yeah, too. So it's both the YA. It's just Claudia. That, Claudia. Yeah, I was gonna say that, that, that filthy Claudia Gray. Yes, uh, <laughs> gosh. Your question, sir. Hey, uh, so something that I anticipate we'll probably see in these movies moving or in these uh, in the show moving forward is that we know that after the Empire collapsed, there's a lot, especially on the outer rims and everything. There's a lot of uh, Imperial bases, and they sort of the leaders there are able to sort of run their own little faction however they want and kind of go rogue for a while because they're, they have the access to all of uh, their troops and all of their equipment and everything. So I think we're going to start seeing a lot of those um, factions sort of starting to turn on each other since there's no central we, centralized we, empire. So We did see a lot of that in Aftermath, the Aftermath trilogy, especially um, the last book in that trilogy mm -hmm. where you saw Ray Sloan sort of navigating 
along with uh, Gallius Rax, the different factions, and they pulled most of them out of the out of the galaxy toward wherever the First Order starts their thing. So I think most of that, even that, is gone at this point. Oh, okay. Um, but I think this provides, like, maybe these are the guys that are left behind. It's like the, the true, I don't know, did, if you all read the, uh, the Rogue One novelization, but, like, the troops they just left behind on Jeddah that didn't make the evacuation orders when they, when they blew the, 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 the Death Star laser, like, maybe these are just sort of the galactic equivalent of that. Like, these are just the people who were left behind when everybody else fled the galaxy. Yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> you see? Uh, first off, I just want to say, Last Shot is a good movie. You can fight me. Anyway. <laughs> uh, why would I fight you? You're right, sir. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was just wondering if... <laughs> if you know what I want, some people actually one. are bigger than you. <laughs> uh, if this is successful and the new Obi-Wan show is successful, what other shows do you guys think Ooh. Disney will look to do in the Star Wars universe? Hmm. Chrissy? Tales of the Jawas. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I was just going to jump in and say Ahsoka, because that's the easy. Yeah. Lando. <laughs> Kira. Uh, yeah. Infus Ness. I, I, want, I want Maz Kanata's backstory. So yeah. there's a show I want so badly. I don't care if it's animated. I don't care if it's live action. You might think I'm crazy for saying this, but I want short films that are like silent one-reeler Charlie Chaplin short films starring Jar Jar. Right? That would be good. Yeah. Like, I want that so bad. Because Jar Jar is basically just Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Why not give us that content outside of the context of any of the other movies? Like Looney Tunes, right? Like, we do Looney Tunes with Jar Jar. That's what I want on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> and my vote is Enfys Nest. Michael stole my answer. There I would take an Enfys Nest show without question. I want a solo show. If they're not going to make another solo movie, yeah. give me a Crimson Dawn series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we've got time. It looks like we're right close. We'll do uh, two more questions, and your question? Um, so you guys said earlier that the, um, the, the show would kind of be, could be about the different characters from the cantina. Do you think that they could do, a, like, I guess, series kind of about the band from the cantina? Like a, a on-the-road documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see more Figure and Dan content. It's, it'll be on VH1's Where Are They Now? <laughs> oh, oh and, and young lady, I have a question for you. Who's your favorite bounty hunter? Mm-hmm. That is such a tough question. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I think to, to answer your question, I think there were, in, you know, in What's Legends Now, there were uh, a lot of the tales of that era, and I think that we may see some of that content come back. And, and, I would and like those to were it. actually, you can get the audio versions of those, and they are like a little closer to like audio dramas. Yeah. And they're a lot of fun, especially with, with the Cantina band. And there's, I mean, there's a, there is a lot of backstory in Legends on the Cantina band and on the Cantina, you know, on the, 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 the people in that place and time. And I uh, think that stuff's very interesting. The, in the current canon, there's the book from a certain point of view that has a lot of stories about a lot of those side characters as well. Yeah. But now, not all of those are canon, right? Some of those are no, canon. No, some of those are not canon. Because yeah. that drove Daniel nuts. Yeah. You, didn't, uh, you didn't want to answer your question, ask your question? Well, and, and actually we have a young lady. I actually have a special surprise for you. Michael, do you want to present? Since we had our final question, uh, we have a special Mandalorian Celebration exclusive poster for you exclusively. So you walked away a little bit. There we go. There we go. And everybody, thank you so much for coming out to the Mandalorian. We really appreciate you coming out.